You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the case of Mary Lou Aruda. Hello and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I am so excited to be back here with you and I'm stoked to talk true crime. It's one of my favorite things, one of my favorite pastimes, one of my favorite hobbies, true crime. Uh, Lately, Brian and I have been watching this show on Netflix. You may have heard of it or watched it, um, but it's called ancient civilizations and the premise of the show is that there's a scientist who offers a different theory to explain the pyramids and all the amazing things that have been built on earth by ancient civilizations which seem a bit out of the ordinary for that time period because if you think about it in our history that we know Anthropologists and scientists both agree that we were a civilization of hunters and gatherers and then all of a sudden we weren't and we don't really know why that is. So he just offers a different explanation. Um, He also shows how each civilization in ancient history has some sort of variation of a great flood that came and wiped out most of humanity and there's also stories of an entity or entities that descend from the sky and so forth and like teach them things um this particular man the scientist has been basically shunned from mainstream scientists and anthropologists who don't want to admit that their hypothesis that we've been believing this whole time could possibly be wrong could possibly have holes in it so anyway It's just fascinating to see him go over his points. And at the beginning, I was like, Brian, WTF, what are you watching? (laughs) Like, this guy is obviously like a wackadoo. But as you continue to watch, you learn that he actually makes some really great points backed by facts. And at the end of the series, um, it's like a five-part series or something, um, at the end, you're like, maybe he is right. I mean, who's to say that he's not? Nobody really knows. We weren't alive back then. I wasn't alive back then. So it could be truth um, or it just could contain bits of truth. And this is the thing. I love conspiracy theories, if only for the simple fact that it means that I must keep an open mind. Um So I love that. I love when like I watch something and it just kind of like tickles my brain a little bit. It forces me to analyze things like, okay, yes, I believe this, but why do I believe this? I don't know. I just think it's really fun. So if you haven't watched that show, I would definitely give it a watch. Um, It's a good show for a proper binge, if you know what I mean. So um, yeah, that's what I've been up to. Um, Before we dive into our case today, we need to do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, If you aren't already following me on Instagram at Mysteries Still Unsolved, 
you should get on that. There you'll be the first to hear about all of the fun things that we have going on. Um, you'll know when I post new episodes and get a little bit of background on the cases. Um, you'll be the first to know when we do giveaways, which I sprinkle here and there throughout the year. You'll get to communicate with myself and other like-minded true crime loving individuals and banter and share your ideas and your thoughts and your theories. Um, every now and again, I will pop in on stories and we'll have a nice little chat. Um, you can also DM me a case suggestion and FYI, today is a case suggestion, not from one person, but like multiple people. I think I had like 12 to 18 people ask me to cover this case. Um, so yeah, if you send me a case suggestion, you might just hear it covered right here on the pod. Um, so yeah, it's great fun, the Instagram. I also have a website. It's www.mysterystillunsolved.com. I just kind of did like a little reboot, a little makeover of it. It needed some tender loving care. So it might look a little bit different than the last time that you were there. Um, If you head on over there, you can podcast and binge my now 102 episodes. Um, You can also purchase merch over there. So if you've ever wanted to represent the podcast um, out and about in the real world, um, you can get a Mystery Still Unsolved vinyl sticker that you can put on your water bottle or wherever you fancy putting a sticker. (laughs) Um, Or you can pre-order a t-shirt. So yeah, the t-shirts are pre-ordered. So I am going to gather up all of the orders that I get Um, over the course of the next month. And I'm going to place a big giant order on March 31st and get your shirts out to you in April. So if you want a shirt, I would pre-order one now because after March 31st, and I place that big batch, I will not be placing another batch of shirts until the end of June. So go over to the site, order your t-shirt because this is going to be your last chance to get a t-shirt from, from Mystery Still Unsolved before like midsummer. So if you want to be repping that shirt on your vacations come summertime, you need to get on pre-ordering one now. Um, last but not least, I now have a Patreon. So if you have a few bucks and you are so inclined and you would like to support this podcast, I will go ahead and post the link in the show notes of this episode. And you can learn all about the tiers over there. Like I feel like I've kind of like in the last two episodes, I've kind of nailed it over the head multiple times. I don't think that I need to like go over like each individual group, but if you click on that link, it will take you over there and it will explain, um, all of the tiers, um, and what you get for belonging to each tier. Um, I will just mention that if you are a paying Patreon member that you will get one extra bonus episode per month. Um, and I'm probably going to get that out to you guys shortly. So if you want to have a bonus episode, then you should go over there and become a Patreon member. It would be so awesome. Okay. So that was a lot of stuff, but I have to conclude it because it's all exciting. It's all progress. So I can't not share it. So (laughs) anyways, so now that that's over and done with, it is time to dive into today's case. And while I did warn you last week, I just want to reiterate before I begin the episode that the case that we are going to be covering today is very difficult. And I know for a fact that it isn't for everyone. Um, So trigger warning, this case involves um, a crime against children. 
Um, it also involves brutality against children. Um, you know yourself best. And if you feel like you need to sit this episode out, I would absolutely not hold it against you. Um, it is pretty rough if crimes against children is something that really, really, really bothers you. And like, how could it not? Honestly, um, as always, I try to do it in the most utmost respectful way and I'm not going to linger on all the sort of details but even in a brief summary it's going to be hard so just please uh, use your discretion and feel free to listen or not listen or fast forward during those sections Um, if you choose to stop the podcast episode now I'm obviously not going to hate you. I still love you. So, (laughs) all right. Today we will be covering the traumatic case of Mary Lou Arruda. Now, this case is brutal, but I am going to let you in on a little secret. It is a solved case. And I know what you're thinking, Rochelle, isn't this mystery still unsolved? Emphasis on the un- (laughs) And you're absolutely right. However, this is a case that, as I mentioned before, I have gotten multiple listener requests to do. And as a personal favor to those who begged and pleaded for me to cover this case, I'm doing y'all solid and I'm giving you this episode. Uh, Don't worry, this is still mystery, still unsolved, and we will continue to almost exclusively cover unsolved cold cases, as I feel like they really need all the attention that they can get, Um, even if that attention does come from my itty-bitty podcast in my itty-bitty corner of the podcast-averse. But I kid you not, I have had like at least 12 to 18 requests to cover this case. (laughs) And I am a podcaster of the people, my people. So here you go. Still a horrible case, but there is a small glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. And that is that the person responsible for this crime was apprehended and did receive swift, sweet justice. (laughs) And now that I've gotten that all out of the way, let us begin. In June of 1978, Mary Lou Arruda was a beautiful, carefree, caring, and vivacious 15-year-old girl residing in the city of Raynham, Massachusetts. And this area is near what is known as the Bridgewater Triangle. If you don't know what the Bridgewater Triangle is, um, it is a place in Massachusetts which is known for like a lot of weird paranormal um it has like a weird paranormal history and like a brutal history like there's a lot of murders that occurred in the Bridgewater Triangle and it's said that there's like this like dark like almost dreaded energy that emanates from there um basically like the whole forest just like needs to be saged like one big massive sage um but don't take my word for it do yourself a favor and do a goog on the Bridgewater Triangle, and you will be amazed by just how many results pop up detailing some of the weirdest ish your eyes have ever read. Um, there is so much stuff. Honestly, like I might just have to like do a case on it one day, but if you can't wait and you want to hear about it from some people who actually live in the Bridgewater Triangle, um, if you're not familiar with the podcast Morbid, um, they do an absolutely phenomenal 
deep dive into the Bridgewater Triangle, and I think that they may even have like multiple episodes covering this topic. As you will see, there really is just like so much wackadoo stuff going on in there. Um, but today, we're not going to talk about the Bridgewater Triangle. We are going to focus on Mary Lou Arruda. I just wanted to kind of give you that caveat that this area where this happened is kind of like known for hosting like a really brutal, um, murderous history. Um, Mary Lou Arruda was born on September 8th in 1963. Her parents were Joanne and Adrian, and they had four children. Mary Lou's brothers were Joseph and Tony, and her sister's name was Karen. Uh, at the time of her disappearance, she was a high school sophomore, and she was also a cheerleader. So, a real fun time. On September 8th, 1978, yeah, you got that right, Mary Lou's 15th birthday, she was riding her bike around her neighborhood, you know, just cruising down the city streets and the dirt paths like a classic kid in the 70s. Um, at around 4.15, a young boy finds her abandoned orange 10-speed on a road called Dean's Road. And when he saw the bike, he immediately knew who the bike belonged to because only one girl in their neighborhood had an orange 10-speed bike, Mary Lou. So he picks it up and he walks it over to her home and he tells um, Mary Lou's mother, Joanne, that he found it and he tells her exactly where he found it. And immediately, Joanne knows that something is not right. Um, she immediately calls police and David Bonaparte, who is a rookie cop, answers and he takes the call. And when I say he's a rookie cop, like I'm saying he is fresh. Like he hadn't even finished the academy yet. And you might think like, oh, that's not good that he's a rookie cop because like this is really serious. But you know what? David Bonaparte is amazing because he ignored that stupid 24-hour rule that they had like in the 70s and 80s and he began investigating this case immediately and I just think that's amazing. Um, Bonaparte went to where the boy found the bike and he secured the area. He taped it off so that the area would not be contaminated um, so a lot of police departments can learn something from Bonaparte. <laughs> uh, the investigators then took photographs and they actually got some photographs um, of some tire tracks that could be seen leaving the dirt path at an accelerated speed away from their scene. They were able to secure a used cigarette butt and they were able to interview witnesses who reported seeing an unfamiliar green car with either a black or gray race, racing stripe on it. Um, and they said that that car had been cruising around the neighborhood. They also reported seeing a male driver with thick brown curly hair and glasses. When Mary Lou went missing, the town was in a full-on panic, and rightfully so because not too long before and not too far away, another young girl had gone missing. Her name was Jacqueline Boussier. Between the hours of 1.30 and 3 o'clock, uh, this girl, Jacqueline, who was 13 years old, was riding her bike home from school. Again, another bike. Uh, when Jacqueline noticed that a light blue car had stopped right in front of her. 
She had actually seen this car before because as she had been riding her bike, this light blue car had passed by her several times and her spidey senses were up. This car was making her feel a little bit uncomfortable, but the way that the car was parked made it impossible for Jacqueline to avoid passing right by it if she wanted to go home. The owner of the vehicle, the light blue vehicle, was a man, and he got out of his vehicle and he left his driver's side door open and he kept the engine running. As Jacqueline approached the car, the man asked if she could help him with directions to a neighbor's home. As he walked towards her, he seemed friendly, he seemed non-threatening, so Jacqueline let her guard down a little bit and turned to point in the direction where the man should head if he was going to go to his neighbor's house. When she turned around, she was blitz attacked by this man. Uh, the man covered her nose and mouth with his hand. Um, in the struggle, she left her bicycle in the street, and she knew that things were getting real, real when she saw that in his hand, he held an iron bar. He then forced a very frightened Jacqueline into his car, shoved her down against the by the dashboard um, so that she would not be seen as they took off. He then drove Jacqueline 30 minutes. The last few miles of the trip, she remembers um, they were driving deeper and deeper down a foresty area. The man stopped the car. He yanked Jacqueline out and drug her even further into the woods um, until they got to a stream. And when they got to the stream, this man forced Jacqueline to kneel in front of the stream. He struck her in the back of the head with an iron bar, that iron bar that he had had in his hand, and he then grabbed her head and forced it under the water of the stream. Jacqueline, only being 13 at the time, fought like a bat out of hell. Good for her. Uh, she managed to rip this man's glasses off of his face and threw them as far as she could. Good girl. Um, as she re as he retrieved them, she attempted to flee. Unfortunately, she did not get very far before he caught up to her. He then forced Jacqueline back into the car, and he proceeded to drive even deeper into the woods. Oh my gosh, so terrifying. I think that the woods are such a scary place. <laughs> I have a thing about the woods. I have a thing about open water. I do not like those things. <laughs> um, after they drove a little bit, again, he got her out of the car. And this time, he forced her to face a tree. He used strips of a torn bedspread to bind Jacqueline's hands, ankles, and torso to the tree. He then proceeded to pace for what she said seems like 20 minutes. She could clearly tell that this man did not know what he was going to do, had no idea what he was doing, and that he was just kind of freaking out. After some scheming, he took another strip of fabric and tied her neck to the tree. He then proceeded to strangle Jacqueline manually with his bare hands until she lost consciousness. Hours later, Jacqueline awoke. The sun was setting, but she didn't see the man. She could tell that she was alone. With all of her strength and all of her might, she freed herself from the binds that the man had put upon her and ran and ran and ran until she finally found refuge with a good Samaritan. 
This incredible person helped get Jacqueline medical attention, and then she was later returned home alive and well. The citizens of Rainham were worried that there was a monster in their midst and that this monster was hurting their teen daughters. Because of almost detective, remember he is a rookie, a smart cookie rookie, um, they were able to begin a giant manhunt for Mary Lou Arruda only hours after she had disappeared. Police put out a composite sketch of the man who was reported seen by multiple people in the area that day. They also released information about the green vehicle, hoping that someone would see the sketch and that they would see the car and they'd be like, oh my gosh, I know so-and-so and he has a car like that and that they would contact them about it. A few days later, police get a tip from someone and they give them a tip about what seems to be a match. Um, they were able to obtain a photo from this tip giver. And this photo that they were given looks remarkably similar to their composite sketch. The man's name, 31-year-old James Cater. Police begin looking into James Cater's past. And what they find is a long, long rap sheet of extreme violence and brutality. Years prior to this, James had been arrested for attacking a 63-year-old woman while she visited her husband's grave at a cemetery, and he had also attempted to rape her during this time. Um, but this 63-year-old woman was fortunately able to escape. So just a lot of those kind of things on his rap sheet, attacking people, attempted kidnappings. This guy was not a good guy. <laughs> um, police also discovered that he had been arrested for the kidnapping and attack of Jacqueline Boussier, but that he had later been released for lack of evidence. They also learned that the day after Mary Lou's kidnapping, so that would have been September 9th, 1978, 31-year-old James Cater had gotten married to an 18-year-old girl. Uh, once married, he had actually left the country on his honeymoon. When he returned a week later and was informed by his neighbors that the police were looking for him in connection to the disappearance of Mary Lou Arruda, James, his attorney, and his new infantile bride uh, voluntarily go to the police station. So at the police station, manning the front desk was a detective named Detective Pacheco, the detective on duty when James Cater waltzed in to the police station that day. And he remembers picking the phone up and calling Detective Bonaparte, who was in charge of the case. And he said, quote, you're not going to believe this, Bonaparte, but your composite sketch has come to life and is in the building, end quote. Okay, so Bonaparte questioned Cater, and Cater actually, actually subsequently gave police permission to search his car. And shocker, James Cater had a bright green 1976 Opal Cadet with a black racing stripe. That literally means nothing to me, as I am not really a car expert, and I feel like when people talk cars, they're talking a different language, and it just kind of sounds like... 
um, that Charlie Brown, like, that's what I hear when people talk cars to me. But I can, I know I'm not an idiot. I know that this car is similar to the car that the neighbors reported seeing the day of Mary Lou's disappearance. So I'm not that dumb, uh, when it comes to cars. When detectives searched the car, they made some very interesting discoveries. For instance, in the trunk, under some luggage, because remember this douchebag had gone on a honeymoon, uh, there were two newspapers open to pages regarding Mary Lou's disappearance. They also noticed a scuff mark on the side of the car about 30 inches up. And they noticed that the tire treads seemed to match the photos that they had taken of the tire patterns fleeing at an accelerated rate from their crime scene. They also found cigarettes in the car that matched the cigarette butt that they had found at the scene. When presented with all of this overwhelming, damning evidence, Cater claimed that there was no way he could have been responsible for Mary Lou's disappearance. He said that it was the day before his wedding, and he had been running around all over town in preparation for his nuptials and subsequent honeymoon. He provided the police with a timeline of his activities. He provided the police with receipts. Um, and when the police looked into these alibis at face value, for the most part, things actually did appear to check out. Okay, so this is the tough part. On November 11th, nine weeks after Mary Lou's bike was discovered on Dean Street, Two boys were riding their dirt bikes in Freewater State Park, which is in the Bridgewater Triangle area, when they came across a decomposing body, which had been tied to a tree. They immediately contacted police, and the body was pretty quickly identified as belonging to Mary Lou Aruda. All right, so trigger warning, we're going to get into what happened to Mary Lou. Um, she had been bound at her hands, ankle, ankles, torso, and neck to the tree in a standing position, similar to Jacqueline. Um, she was fully clothed. Medical examiners later determined that at some point, as Mary Lou was bound to this tree, she had become unconscious. And it was at this point that the ligature around her neck caused strangulation by positional asphyxiation. Basically, in a nutshell, she lost consciousness and the weight of her head caused her to lose oxygen and die. Um, it was determined that Mary Lou had died the day of her disappearance, only hours after being taken. Um, there were no signs of sexual assault, but remember, Mary Lou was in a state of advanced decomp. And I don't want to be crude, but soft tissues are always the first to go, so... I don't think we'll ever really know. Um, there was evidence that she had been brutalized before her death, that she had just been tortured, beaten up. It's just, it's horrible. Um, during this time, Cater was named as the police department's number one person of interest, Noda. And police began noticing some holes in James Cater's alibis. Um, it turns out that Cater was not really where he had claimed to be. I mean, sure, he had provided the police with receipts. But 
as the police looked at these receipts, they noticed that all of the payments had been made in cash. And they had reason to believe that Cater had retrieved those receipts from the trash cans of the various places that he said he was. Now, don't get it twisted. I think Cater is a freaking idiot. But honestly, that's kind of smart. Um, Most people I know, myself included, toss their receipts right after they get them. Like if I go to the gas station and I get a receipt, immediately trash. I'm going to keep it. Um, and in the seventies, people were still paying for a lot of stuff in cash. They didn't have Apple pay. They didn't have, you know, do you remember your mom, like writing a check in the nineties? It freaking took forever. So like people were paying for things in cash. So really all James would have to do is just dig through the trash for a couple of receipts that were not paid for with a card or a check and bingo alibis for days. He read the how to kill people dummies in the 1970s um, because that's genius honestly uh, with all of this evidence in December of 1978 James is arrested now during the trial Cater testifies in his own defense which I mean that is huge because not too many people on trial do that um, under oath Cater actually admitted to the kidnapping and brutality attack of Jacqueline Boussier, but he vehemently denied having anything to do with the kidnapping and murder of Mary Lou Arruda. James, 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 James. I am going to have to raise the bullshit flag on that one. You are telling me that these two crimes are so obviously related so obviously done by the same person down to the strips of bed sheets used to tie up the victims and your car that was seen at the crime but that you didn't do it oh sorry that you did one but that you didn't do the other one James I have a question Do you think we got up this morning and started the day off by taking a handful of stupid pills and chase it down with a swig of derp the derp? Get real, James. Get real, okay? Uh, The prosecution brought up many witnesses. One was William, an expert on tire impressions, who stated that the tire tracks of Cater's car 100% matched the tire impressions left at the scene. Even down to this like wavy pattern on the front passenger side tire, which was caused by wobbly. Oh my gosh. (laughs) What was it called? What did I say it was? Uh, I don't know. Wobbly something. You got to get it replaced. It makes your car's tire like lean one way. (laughs) Guys, I told you I'm not an expert on cars and their parts by any means. So you're just going to have to trust me when I say that it was a big deal that they discovered this wobbly pattern, this wobbly bit in this car. Okay, just trust me on that. (laughs) I don't know the name of the things. Oh my gosh. Okay. The prosecution would also present the scuff mark made on the defendant's car, which was approximately 30 to 31 inches high, which is the exact same height as the handlebars on Mary Lou's 10-speed bike. The theory that the prosecution offered was that Cater must have ridden up beside Mary Lou and bumped her with his car to get her to fall off her bike before getting out and dragging her into his vehicle. 
In June 1979, Cater is convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He is also convicted of the kidnapping that he admitted to under oath, in which he also gets 10 years for that. Cater appeals his conviction. And shockingly, the Supreme Court actually reverses his convictions. What the heck? Um, The Supreme Court states that some of the testimony that was entered into evidence during Cater's trial was done so illegally as it was obtained through the process of hypnosis. Um, I guess some of the witnesses underwent hypnosis in order to get the make and model of the car, the color, and the license plate number. All right, so my thoughts on this. I can see if they had just arrested him based on the color and make of his car. Fine. But you're telling me that someone under hypnosis told you the make and model of Cater's car Plus, got the license plate number two, and then they ran those information that they got, and it matched. Like, think about it. They can't just grab a bunch of letters and numbers out of their butt while they're under hypnosis, and they just so happen to match the same make and model of the car that they saw. Like, I would assume if I were to, like, come up with a phony license plate number off the top of my head it probably wouldn't match the green car. They'd be like, uh, are you sure? Because we ran the license plate number that you gave us and it belongs to a white 1982 Toyota Corolla. But like the fact that it, they gave them a license plate and they ran it and they were like, hey, wouldn't you know, these random numbers and letters that you gave us actually do match a green car with a racing stripe. Like that's not a coincidence. I feel like that's way too much to be a coincidence. Regardless, the law states that any information obtained through the process of hypnosis is inadmissible in a court of law. So, like I said, the conviction was overturned and James Cater was granted another trial. Furthermore, when he went in front of the Supreme Court with his claims, he claimed that his previous suspicion of being the person who kidnapped Jacqueline should not have been admissible, and the Supreme Court agreed on that front, too. What? Oh, my gosh. That needs to be in there because it clearly shows that this guy has a pattern. Also, forget all of that. Cater, under oath, told the court, unprovoked, that he had indeed kidnapped Jacqueline, but that he had not killed and murdered Mary Lou. So, Cater said this himself, and now he wants to take it back? All right, so he was tried again and convicted again. Great news, right? No, because Cater appeals this new conviction and is again granted a new trial by the Supreme Court. What is going on here? I feel like I'm literally living in a freaking episode of the Twilight Zone. Okay, so he is granted another trial. And shocker, they did the exact same thing. And shocker, he is found guilty again. But when you know, this mofo tries to appeal the Supreme Court again. But this day, the Supreme Court must have forgotten to take their stupid pills. Thank goodness for us all. 
And they say, nah, dude, you can't do this three times. People clearly be thinking you're guilty. <laughs> Um, in 1992, this freaking dude, James, somehow convinces the local officials to grant him another trial, and they do! Oh my gosh, were people just taking stupid pills left and right? Oh my goodness. But this time, he isn't found guilty. Don't worry, he doesn't get away. It's a mistrial because there was a hung jury on that one. So apparently somebody on the jury thought that he may be innocent. All right, so a couple of years later, he's been in holding this whole time. Like, don't worry, he hasn't been free. He's still been in jail. He was brought to trial again 20 years later from the first time that he went to jail and was convicted of these crimes. And James Cater goes to trial again. And during this trial, Cater's lawyer asserts that Mary Lou was not the victim of James Cater, but was in fact the victim of a satanic cult. Um, And that Cater was the victim of an overzealous prosecutor who were trifling to just pin this on him. Apparently, Cater's defense attorney had a witness who was willing to say under oath that they saw a group of 20 people with torches entering the woods on the night of Mary Lou Aruda's death and that it had something to do with a satanic cult, not anything to do with Mr. Cater. So I'm picturing like the scene from Beauty and the Beast when Gaston like and all those dudes from the pub go into the forest with the torches. That's basically what he is wanting us to believe. But do y'all remember Satanic Panic from the 80s and the 90s? Well, I guess his defense attorney chose to hop on that train. Luckily, the jurors did not take their stupid pills that morning and they saw right through it and it didn't work. James is sentenced to life without parole again. So just to quickly summarize, four trials, four guilty verdicts. I think the people have spoken, okay? James was sentenced to live the rest of his days behind bars at Shirley State Prison. However, on January 9th, 2016, James became very ill and was transferred to a hospital, and it was discovered that he had cancer. I tried to look up to see, like, what type of cancer it was. Um, I couldn't find anything. It just said that he died of cancer. Yes, on January 23rd, so just a couple days after he was admitted to the hospital, he did die of his cancer. Now, one thing I didn't tell you before is that when James Cater was obviously sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole four times, four different times, um, I didn't tell you that he was also sentenced those 10 years for the kidnapping and attempted murder of Jacqueline and that this term was to be served after the life sentence. So instead of him dying and then bringing him back to life to serve out the rest of his sentence, it means that James Cater is still being punished for his crimes beyond the grave to this day until 2026. So we can all sleep peacefully knowing that. Um, upon learning of James Cater's death, Joanne Aruda, remember this is the mother of Mary Lou, was quoted as saying, quote, I believe that there is a heaven, and I believe that there is a hell, and I hope that he rots in hell. 
Me too, Joanne. I think we all do. I know that today's case was really, really rough. Like, really rough. And I appreciate all of you for sticking with me during this episode. I know how it is to not like crimes against children. I loathe crimes against children. Um, hopefully, if you stuck with me during the episode, you were able to, you know, successfully fast forward when you wanted to. Um, but yeah, I know that it was rough and I know that we can all be happy. We can be happy all we want because Cater was caught and is dead and all. But it doesn't change the fact that Mary Lou Aruda died. And I hope that she is resting in peace and I hope that her family um, can be comforted knowing that she is free from pain um, and that they can be comforted knowing that we have not forgotten her and that we will not let her memory cease to exist. We will keep talking about it. But I did want to make sure that we end on a positive note. Okay. So this is just something that I learned during my research and I thought that it was really, really amazing and kind of funny. Okay, so Joanna Ruda, Mary Lou's mother, is a bad ass mother. <laughs> because back in 1979, when James was wasting everybody's time and money, appealing all of his convictions left and right, when he knew damn well that he was guilty, Joanne attacked him. Yes! On the way to his car to be transferred back to the prison after a long day of court, Joanne was out there and she was waiting for him to come out of the courthouse. And when he did, she started pummeling him and yelling, damn you, James Cater, you stupid piece of rat scum. You killed my daughter and you know it. We all know it. She also threw a burning cigarette butt down his shirt. Savage snaps for Joanne. I hope that the police officers put in charge of escorting Cater to his car. I hope that they just let him, her get a few punches to the head before they stepped in. <laughs> if I were a cop, I know that I'd be real slow moving in a situation like that. Mary Lou's mother, Joanne, did not face any charges for her actions other than being told not to do that again. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So she didn't do that again, but she did keep torturing him until he died. So every year that Cater was in prison, she would call the prison on her daughter's birthday, also the day that she was kidnapped, and she would leave a message for James, and it would say, James Cater, Mary Lou Aruda is desperately trying to get in touch with you. You guys, don't mess with Joanna Ruda, y'all. <laughs> don't do it. She is so cool. I love it. Um, I hope that we will all take a lesson out of Joanna Ruda's playbook and refuse to play by the rules and do whatever we need to do to ensure that those who seek to cause us harm regret it every single day of their lives. Joanne Aruda for president. Seriously. Um, I hope that those who requested this episode, as there were many, are happy with the work that I did today. I hope that you feel I did Mary Lou Aruda justice. Um, 
And yeah, thank you so much for sending in a listener suggestion. I had heard about this case before. I knew that it was a solved case, but it's always fun to just kind of you know, do a little bit more research, dig a little bit deeper, go under the surface and just like learn all these fun little things. Cause like, I did not know that Joanne was such like a badass. Like that is so awesome. I love it. Like, I feel like she is who I want to be when I grow up. Um, do you want to know how you can better support this podcast? Of course you do. Follow me on Instagram at mystery still unsolved. Visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Get some fun merch while you're there because I'm going to be placing an order on March 31st and then you won't be able to get a shirt until the middle of July. So if you want to get a shirt, you better get it now. Also, you can donate to the Patreon and I will put the link in my show notes. Um, Another way to help is to tell a true crime loving family member or friend about me, but don't be limited to the term family and friends. No, no, no. Tell your kid's teacher. Tell your mechanic. Tell your barista. Tell your landscaper. Tell that neighbor that bugs you. Maybe they'll back off if they know that you're listening to a true crime podcast. They'll be like, we don't mess with Mr. and Mrs. Smith because they listen to Mystery Still Unsolved, which is a true crime podcast that talks about unsolved crimes. Um, I want everyone to know about Mystery Still Unsolved, even your enemies. Uh, but the best way to support this podcast would be to join me next week when together we'll discover did anyone ever place a useful tip has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved